Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast. I know a lot of people have been asking me about why don't I record a podcast and uh, it was just about uh, trying to be inspired and all of a sudden I was taking a shower and I was inspired. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a series of podcasts we'll be doing uh, in the coming year and the first uh, episode is with my colleague and friend Ben Symes. Hello everyone. Hello. Yeah. The potato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the spud. How long have you been working with us now, Ben? Um, about five years. Five years. Yeah, it's gone so quick. I was thinking about that last night, like, from one to five years, it's just... Uh, yeah. yeah, it's been a long time. It's gone so fast. And you came from, uh, from uh, Fulen in Tokyo? Yes, yeah. So I'd worked um, with Fulen in Oslo for many years, and um, had done some roasting training with Kaffa as well, and then I was part of setting up the coffee roastery in Tokyo yeah. with Kenji. Yeah. And lived there for one year starting food and roastery, so. And then you missed Norway so much you had to come back? Yeah, pretty much, actually. Um, it is a good place to live here in Oslo. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I decided I wanted to come home to Norway, even though I'm not from Norway. And, uh, yeah, asked if you needed anyone. And I did. Yeah, yeah. it was good time. timing, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you started straight, uh, you went straight into our roastery, didn't you? Uh, pretty much, I, um, I began as a replacement for Ida, yeah. my, old, my old colleague, yeah. um, who was going on maternity leave. Yeah. So I sat in the office and I uh, was sort of like the wholesale manager and looking after all her jobs for a while. But um, the way things were, was, uh, we needed someone to roast as well. Yeah. Um, so I sort of started to split my duties. I suppose that's when the potato role began. Yes. So <laughs> for, those who, yeah. for those of you who don't know what a potato is, in Norway that's a term for a person yeah. you can use for anything. Yeah, they say it's an endearing term here, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. Potato is delicious yeah. and it goes with everything. Yeah, so um, hopefully it's positive. But yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, I brought you on the episode because we're going to talk about roasting today. Yeah. And part of the reason why we're going to talk about roasting is because we have been developing a roast training Right. For the last uh, couple of months, yes, you did your first last month, was it? Yes, um, a couple of months ago, I think we we did our first course, yeah, yeah. or workshop we call it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, can you tell a little bit about it? Um, yeah, it was really fun. It was um, something we'd been sort of talking about doing for a while. We got a lot of requests for it. A lot of people asking if there's anything like that. So we just felt like now we had the space and the kind of time to begin to offer these workshops yeah and we call it a workshop is because it's it's more of a collaborative interactive event um a lot of sort of cuppings and sensory analysis and it's pretty much two days going through the whole process from start to finish the way we work at team Lumberbo. Yeah. yeah so i figured we will talk a little bit about that today yeah. and kind of have a little mini course uh we're going to try to keep this episode below 30 minutes yeah, okay <laughs> so um that can be hard for you sometimes too yeah, yeah. but uh back to your background a little bit so you yeah. you, you started a food and roastery uh in japan what mm. kind of roaster did you have there uh there was an old probot yeah um a 12 kilo 12 kilo yeah so um not a ug but uh yeah so there we was um it was a little bit one-dimensional, that roaster, like we only had so much sort of uh, power and um, there was only really one style of roasting that we could achieve with it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we were sort of locked into things, but it was a good way to start, I think. Yeah. And it was the right volume and the right size for our volume, at least. Yeah, yeah. I think so. the new robots are much more flexible. Yeah, they probably are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
I haven't worked on the new Pro-Bet, I just used the old ones. Yeah, I know, uh, they have yeah. done quite a lot to it. Uh, I'm sure they I have, hear. yeah. Mm. And uh, uh, also, now you're roasting on the Loring, but before that you also roasted on our UG15. Yeah, correct. So I used the UG15 and I used a, a UG, an old uh, UG up at uh, Kaffa as well yeah. when I was training. So I had a lot of experience with that. Yeah. And that seemed to be the trend at the time, you know, five, uh, seven years ago sort of yeah. thing was, um, at least in Oslo, these drum roasters. And I think the reason is not necessarily because they're such fantastic roasters. They're good roasters for mm -hmm. sure, but uh, they were cheap. Yeah. So back in the days, I could buy one. I think I bought one with the D-Stoner for twenty-eight thousand euros. Yeah. Uh, and that was totally refurbished, yeah, fifteen right. kilo UG. Yeah. And now I, I was able to sell it for you know ten thousand yeah. euros more. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> After ten years of use. That's appreciated. So uh, and uh, the buyer was very happy. They're Fuden, your former yeah. employer. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, and then we switched to a Loring, which. If you have seen our uh, YouTube videos, we have done a couple of videos on that already. Mm. So if you're interested in yeah. hearing our opinion about the switch from a Proba to Loring, uh, I suggest you go to our YouTube channel and check that out. Uh, I myself have been roasting on uh, uh, UG22 as well, mm. uh, before we had the UG15. So UG, for those of you who don't know, UG is like an old uh, 1950s, 1960s Probat model. Mm. And then 15 or 22 is the amount of kilos you should be able to roast on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it depends on the burner and uh, yeah. we had a new burner under our 12 kilo one and... Yeah, we could actually do 15 kilos on it, yeah. but uh, we, we prefer to do a little bit less. Yeah. And the same with the UG22, I think I did maximum 20 kilo batches, but mm. that wasn't comfortable. I didn't have enough power to kind of yeah. uh, boost it. And then uh, I went from there to a 120 kilo roaster, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> roasting uh, coffee for stocklets at Solbergen Hansen. And that roaster was pretty difficult because it was the old one which had three settings. Yeah. It was flame one, two and three. three yeah. And that was it. So, yeah. and uh, you really had to plan your roasts yeah. ahead a lot more because there was so much momentum. Yeah. So when you kind of wanted to turn the temperature down, you had to maybe do it like one and a half minute before. Start early. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I had a lot of history with that roaster and the roasters as well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> they were a kind of, uh, I would say, stubborn old men to be polite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they didn't really want me to touch the roaster at all. So yeah. I actually had to stand next to them and tell them what to, which button right. to press. Yeah. Because uh, they didn't trust my fingertips. <laughs> so that was pretty intense. But after I a while, I kind of wish I could work like that these days. That would be <laughs> nice. <laughs> but after a while, they let me do everything. So yeah. uh, you had to earn your uh, earn your dues or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I was quite young and also quite stubborn. So yeah. I guess uh, <laughs> that was the reason. So let's talk about the the way we roast and so on. Like, uh, mm. I figure we could just go through the kind of topics we cover in our yeah, course that's a good so idea. That people can uh, hear yeah. a little bit about how we work yeah. and uh, what better way is to start talking about uh, our recent uh, win at the Nordic Roaster Championship. Yeah, yeah it's always um, a great event we look forward to it every year yeah. and I'm uh, very happy and lucky to win again this year. Yeah. It's so close like the the overall level of the competition is very high. Much higher now yeah. than it used to be, I think. It's fantastic to see. It's, um, and I think, I don't know what the final scores were, but it was only point something of a margin between one and two, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, we, we had two 
really good roast. I was really happy with the way we worked towards the competition. Um, we used the coffee from one of my favourite farms, Nascimento in Honduras, yeah. Santa Barbara. Yeah. Um, yeah. An e uh, cafe. Yeah. E yeah. cafe noventa, uh, which is a hybrid. So just to sum up the competition, it's a competition for ten roasters, and. Uh, uh, there's two categories. One category where everyone, every roaster roasts the same coffee that's mm. provided by a sponsor, and then it's blank up by the attendees and they score it. Yeah. And Which you are about sixty or something, aren't we? All yeah. yeah. There's so sixty it's attendees. Quite a lot of judging. So every attendee is a judge, and uh, you have to score between eighty and hundred. And that's just because you know this is specialty level, so yeah. uh, it would be unfair to score something really low. Yeah. We might look at that uh, next year because in the second round where. It was an open round where yeah. uh, the only criteria was that each roaster had to bring a, a Cutimore or a hybrid, a, yeah. hybrid, yeah. a leaf resistant, resistant hybrid. Yeah. Um, so and we won with a, a hybrid that has yeah. now been proven not to be resistant anymore, yeah. but uh, we were allowed to compete with it. But um, uh, in that category, there were actually some defects on the table. Uh, a couple of coffees had some defects, not just in one cup, but in many, many cups. So mm -hmm. Uh, we'll look at the scoring there, but uh, mm. um, for, yeah, for, for me it's a nice competition because we get to kind of focus a little bit more on roasting again. Yeah, it is. Not like we don't do that every day, but um, um, it's kind of nice to question yeah. what is what we're doing a mm. good thing or not. Like, should we change the way we work or... Yeah. And what do you think the reason why we've been able to, to win so many times? Uh, <laughs> I think, um, honestly, it's a green coffee thing, when, especially when you come to that uh, open category. Yeah. Um, that's where we've generally had the most success in, yeah. that, in that field. And um, we're starting with a very high quality green coffee. Yeah, um, yeah and we work very methodically. Yeah. And we do a lot of testing and we do a lot of cupping sensory analysis. Yeah. And we don't worry too much about uh, a theory or um, a roast curve. Uh, so we, when we're choosing the, the roast to enter, we do everything blind and we cough and we choose the best one. Yeah. And we don't really worry if like the curve is not kind of trendy or like I call it like a sexy roast curve. Yeah, no, there's no such thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, we just sort of base that on our, what we like personally. And I think that reflects the roastery. Yeah. So that's why I like the competition too, because it's kind of like a little microcosm, like boiled down in like a, maybe a couple months we work towards that competition. Yeah. And that sort of reflects our whole year. Working. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, I mean, uh, I think part of the reason why we were able to win is kind of part of the reason why I was able to win the World Barista Championship back in the day mm. is uh, I didn't really change anything yeah. from my everyday to the competition. Yeah, exactly. I figured that if I'm going to be good at something, I have to do that every day yeah. and not just do it, you know, one month prior to the competition. Yeah. Of course, we focus a little bit more when it's a competition coffee that we haven't roasted before and so on. Yeah. But um, we only had three shots to roast that coffee and... Yeah. The process, at least, uh, of how we kind of discussed and developed the profile for it is the same as we yeah. would do with any other coffee. Exactly. So that's it's really, a ref and that's part of the competition, I think, is it's a good reflection of the roasteries that enter. Yeah. Um, I mean, some roasteries and ourselves, are, we, you need to go out and find a coffee for that competition usually because it's a category. Yeah. Um, but we always work with the farm that we uh, have a good relationship with. Yeah. You know, we don't go and just choose something off a cupping table. So luckily we have been, uh, every year the category changes, but luckily we have been able to compete because 
part of our philosophy is to work with the same producers every year mm. and uh, we won't kind of start shopping around just to be able to enter the competition because mm. it wouldn't reflect the way we work yeah. uh, every day so but fortunately uh, until now the categories have been you know we have been able to enter with mm. some of the coffees we buy already mm. so but next year might be more challenging is that right next year yeah. might be more challenging uh, and i'm not going to reveal the category but uh it ha naturals has been discussed yeah. and uh, maybe uh, our followers know that we're not so big on naturals we mm. do have a couple yeah. at the moment but um i think you know maybe the, maybe it's time that uh to show uh, where other people can shine because there are some other groceries who are focusing much more on naturals for instance yeah. and, and so far the categories have all been washed except this year any process any was actually allowed yeah. and there was a carbonic macerated coffee on the table yeah that was some interesting there were a couple processes. of naturals yeah but still we won with a washed one mm. which i think you know it pleases my heart yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about green coffee because you yeah. mentioned that yeah that's probably also a part of the reason why we have been able to do well. I think so. Yeah, I feel really privileged actually to have the opportunity like to work in this roastery um, because the the quality of the of that raw product we're getting is uh, really high. So in a way, the roasting process downstairs is is uh, um, it's not the most difficult part of the job. You know, it's just about like finding the right window for that coffee and yeah, um, yeah being consistent, maintaining. Yeah. So. I think with the lowering as well, it's been a little bit easier to... Uh, I think the margin of error is a little bit bigger, uh, or smaller you call it, I don't know. But, wider, uh, wider maybe. It's, uh, it's easier to develop the coffees with a, with a yeah. hot air roaster, mm. like it is. Mm. And with our probat, I often felt that... Uh, and I have to mention that it, it was an old probat with a yeah. cast iron drum and yeah. you know and very specific to our setup. And yeah. yeah, and it was quite difficult to develop uh, some of the coffees we buy mm. uh, because they are a lot of times shade dried, so the beans are very hard because mm. the cell structure is very intact mm. and uh, high density beans. Yeah, um, so sometimes it was you know hard to kind of fully develop it without getting very roasty flavors. So mm. I feel like it's a bit easier now. Mm. But uh, for me, at least, um, when we have this um, roast training here, uh, we do spend a, quite a lot of time talking about green coffee. Yeah, that's yeah, a big part of the, the unit, I suppose. Yeah. Um, because that is a big part of our roastery. And that's your field, that's you're traveling a lot and visiting all of our producers and working very closely at Origin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's so many steps in that process to... Yeah, there is. It's not like... Um, it's a, a coincidence that our coffees are getting yeah. better. Mm. It's a result of a lot of hard work from the farmers we buy from and that I also help them, you know, get new ideas mm. and so on. So every time when I visit, for instance, Marisabel and Moises, the Caballeros in Honduras or Jobnil, also Nascimento in Honduras, yeah. we would discuss, you know, look at how they produce coffee. Maybe in the, since last visit, I've learned something new yeah. uh, because I do follow a lot of research and also on Instagram, like I follow mm. what other people are doing and yeah. uh, listen to podcasts and we sometimes uh, there's ideas that we want to test out and you know they're not always successful, yeah. but uh, at least we've tried it out. Uh, I can say like especially with the drying process, we've been able to improve the quality a whole lot. I think um, so, yeah. We've kind of changed all the drying techniques from being normally patios and mm. mechanical dryers and now all the producers are drying 
on race beds of e some sort, evenly on, on the shades, yeah. very evenly. Mm. It's stored in Grain Pro, and that really increases the shelf life of the coffee. Yeah. So one of the exercises we actually did in the course was to taste three vintages yeah. from the same farm. That's really interesting because it's not so long ago where we thought about coffee like that. Um, like a seasonal. It had a very short shelf life. It was like buy only what you need for a certain you know short period yeah. and. Uh, make sure you roast it and sell it and get it out quick because yeah. otherwise it's going to start fading. Yeah. But we don't notice that so much anymore. No, and uh, the specific farm we were cupping, we cupped the 2017, yep. 2018 and 2019 harvest from Finca Tamana in Colombia. Mm. And uh, you know, five years ago, everyone would say Colombian coffee fades fast. Yeah. So it becomes, it loses its flavor and sweetness and becomes woody fast. Mm. That's what fading is. And uh, now uh, I think that 2017 coffee had hints of it, yeah. but the 18 and 19 were nice. almost identical. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that's yeah, really kind of part of why we're talking a lot about green coffee, because uh, buying good green coffee is not something that's coincidental. Like, no. you can go to uh, your annual sourcing trip in our third floor in our building to mm. Nordic Approach and cup through probably hundreds of coffees, and I'm sure you will find super tasty coffees because yeah. they buy great coffees. Great ones. But you never know how that coffee was produced and stored mm. uh, because they're buying a lot of coffees from different farmers. Mm. So there's no guarantee. Like some of the farmers, yeah, they have very well control over mm. uh, over the process and others not so much. So mm. that coffee might taste fantastic right there and then. But when it, arri yeah. when it arrives or if you want to keep that coffee for three or four months, there's always a risk that it's yeah. going to change in quality. That was interesting for me because I was learning a bit during this um, this section of the workshop from you too because the way you approach buying coffees in Kenya was interesting to hear that you know you're not necessarily looking for the best tasting coffee right there yeah. at that moment because um, you don't want a coffee that is maybe peaked already or yeah. uh, you, so you need to think about a lot of different things when you're choosing. Yeah for sure. To find something that's Cupping in up. Kenya is yeah. a, a I would say it's fun, but it's also a huge challenge. Challenge, yeah. The, traditionally, you go down, because we've been buying from washing stations and cooperatives, mm. so we would go and visit an exporter, and there would be you know hundreds of coffees on the table. Yeah. All of them tasting pretty good, yeah. I have to say. Uh, of course, there are some defect coffees, but if they're clean, you know they're normally quite nice, because they're all growing the same varieties, SL28, SL34, Riviru and Batian. And you know already that those coffees are fruity. Yeah. So of course you don't want to buy anything defect, uh, but a lot of times people will look for uh, that typical Kenyan character mm. when they're down there cupping in February, like two months after harvest. Yeah. And if you find that very kind of open, transparent, and fruity, yeah. fruity coffee, most likely that will be from the fly crop, which is yeah. an earlier harvest. Mm. <laughs> uh, because when the coffee is very fresh, it tends to be quite closed and yeah. a little green. Yeah. Um, so you really need experience there to kind of... Yeah, a little bit. And I learned it the hard way because we mm. bought some of those coffees. And yeah. when they landed in Norway, they were already faded. Yeah. So um, for me, it's more important that they're sweet. They have like a really nice, smooth mouthfeel. And, uh, you know, that they have some kind of intensity of acidity. Mm. And if they have those three things, you know that that fruit flavor is going to come. Yeah. And of course, you, I look for coffees from the same cooperatives and mm. so that I already know are producing yeah. good qualities. Quality and, yeah. 
we've worked with before. And that's one part of it. The other part is, you know, uh, when it comes to Kenya and uh, the roaster in uh, Dorman's lab, for instance, he probably roasts four or five hundred coffees mm -hmm. a day on, on eight barrels of sample roasters. And, uh, you know, the roast is not going to be perfect. No. Yeah, so, so you've got to kind of see through that as well. And yeah. yeah. And if, if you're wondering if the coffee has potential or not, I'd rather just cup it again yeah. than to dismiss it straight away. Yeah. So it's kind of like a World Cup scenario where you start with a lot of coffees yeah. and you narrow it down throughout the week. And then at the end of the week, you probably end up with 10 coffees. Yeah. And maybe out of those, you buy six. Mm. Uh, but we tend to kind of focus on the same washing stations and yeah. hopefully in the future also some single farm coffees. I think that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, uh, you know, if you, if you start with nice green coffees, yeah. pretty easy to roast coffee. Mm. Um, because the coffee is what it is. It's much more difficult if you have a coffee that is not mm, yeah. very sweet. Well, that was also like an interesting part of that green coffee section was to, to kind of understand what you were buying and um, don't try to look for flavors that are not there. So if you are working with one farm and different varieties, you know, don't expect like a really fruity, um, a bright acidity from, you know, a Verida Colombia or Hatuai, yeah. for example. Right? Yeah, the um, example we used was, uh, I think we cupped five different varieties from the Caballero yeah, family. Yeah. And of course, some of them were very floral, some more fruity, mm. some not so much. Yeah. And like their Hatuai coffee is extremely sweet and chocolatey and can have some kind of dried fruit flavor or something, yeah. but it's very, very subtle. So it doesn't matter what no. you do with the roaster, that coffee will never taste like a geisha. Exactly. And that's what we want from that coffee. So understanding kind of what you're starting with. Yeah. Is, uh, so trying to kind of maximize the chocolatey sweet mm. flavors rather than having, like we cupped it yesterday or two days ago on mm. our production cupping. And there was one batch that was slightly more acidic than the other. Mm. And uh, of course, for me at least, I'm buying that coffee for sweetness. Mm. And that's how I want to present it. But it's okay. up for, there's no right or wrong, it's just that's what I'm looking for in that specific coffee. Yeah. And if I want something more acidic, I'll just, you know, maybe get a tamana or yeah. something else. So I think, yeah, understanding the produce is, is very, very important. And then, then we, the next step is, of course, uh, quality control of green coffee. Yep. Something I think, uh, especially if you're not, uh, kind of sourcing your coffee at origin uh, and are working with importers. I think, I, at least my impression is that not everyone has a moisture meter. No. So they kind of trust that the importer has already yeah. checked the quality and, yeah. you know. And then those moisture meters are calibrated very differently from, yeah. from each meter to meter. So this is kind a of huge thing actually. Yeah, so you need to sort of, if you do have one, you need to sort of understand your one and be calibrated to yeah, those numbers. And this is something I learned at uh, Datara. I was there last year. The Datara is uh, probably the most advanced coffee farm in the world in Brazil. Mm. Um, they produce nice coffees. They have some very good coffees, but very consistent coffees. Mm. And uh, I think coffee collectives are still buying from them. Uh, and but I mean, it's a six thousand hectare farm. Yeah. And uh, the owner is investing a lot in technology and, mm. and research on the farm. Uh, and also in you know uh, communal uh, projects mm -hmm. uh, and so on, but um, they have done uh, research on moisture meters where uh, 
it happens that uh, moisture meters are calibrated to different things. So they're all calibrated to you know dried water, yeah. uh, but the method of how you dry uh, out the water from from the product that you're measuring can be different. So for instance, you can uh, you can uh, put the coffee beans in the oven, a drying oven, mm. for 16 hours at uh, let's say uh, 100 degrees, mm. and uh, that can be a standard that you can calibrate from, or mm. you can do it you know at 80 degrees yeah, for three days or you know yeah. so there's it just happens that there are different standards of how you calibrate yeah. uh, uh, yeah. moisture meters and uh, in practicality that means uh, when i have my moisture meter here and that says 10 to 12 percent which is kind of been the standard for uh, yeah. for the coffee industry, industry standard, yeah. that's based on a brazilian uh, standard um, and if I give my coffee to Elias, who I just bought a new moisture meter. His moisture meter will say seven to nine percent. Yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah. So if I told Elias to dry his coffee to <laughs> 20, ten to twelve percent, yeah. it would show much much higher on my moisture meter, yeah. and I would reject the coffee. Yeah. So what's right or wrong? Well, we know that the water activity is quite important, and it's mm. recommended as between 0.5 to 0.6. Mm. I prefer maybe a little bit lower. Um, but uh, you, it means that you actually really need to know what to what standard is your moisture meter calibrated to, yeah. um, so that you are speaking the same language. So it's yeah. kind of like if you're from America, which you're not, and you're using Fahrenheit, yeah. and I'm from Europe and using Celsius, yeah. we would you know stand there and discuss what uh, degree it is outside, what yeah. temperature it is. If we didn't numbers, know that yeah. there are two different scales, we mm. would argue a lot. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, it's being calibrated to your machine, and so uh, not yeah. necessarily trusting the numbers from yeah somewhere else. It's yeah. very very important yeah. to know, and unfortunately, I hear that not all of the producers of moisture meters are open about this. Mm. So um, <laughs> it means you the best way I think is to get uh, many samples and test them, yeah. and also test the water activity. Yeah, and then you would see in the kind of range where you should be at. So. Your water activity meter should read between probably 0.45 to 0.55, I would recommend. Yeah. And um, but the reason why we use moisture meters and not water activity all the time is because water activity takes more time. Yeah. <laughs> it's very slow. Yeah. So, um, but uh, the reason why we we do have to really know the moisture is because if it's too high, mm. of course the shelf life of the yeah. coffee will be very short. Yes, exactly. If it's very dry, yeah. uh, people say it's difficult to roast. Mm, it's not necessarily more difficult, but mm. it's different. Yeah. So we actually do it in our roastery to check, yeah. you know, are we, how are we gonna kind of attack this coffee with yeah. the heat profile and so yeah. on. Yeah. We have a record of the, the moisture content of all the coffees, and uh, that sort of changes a little bit over time too. And then we're, um, yeah, it gives us kind of an initial kind of plan for the at least for the duration of the roast and the yeah. initial sort of uh, gas settings or burner settings yeah. from the start so. so i think in general just to generalize uh, a moisture coffee needs much more heat yeah especially in the beginning you need to get that water out yeah. and i feel that because of that you can have a little bit less heat at the end yeah. if you have a drier coffee like some of our cannons are down to like eight and a half percent they need a lot of heat, but not you know that mm. much, mm. and uh, but they can have more heat at the end. Yeah, I also feel that 
uh, not feel, but the trend I've seen is that moisture, the more moisture, the darker you can actually go without mm. having those roasted flavors. Yeah. Whereas if it's very dry, you have, mm. you know, you have to go lighter. Mm. But um, that's interesting. I haven't really researched it in a very yeah. methodical way. It's just the trend that I see when I follow these coffees that, yeah, yeah. you can go slightly darker on higher moisture without mm. sacrificing any flavor. Yeah. But also, you know, we do moisture testing because we, of course, if I get three lots uh, from Hilberto in uh, El Salvador, for instance, this year, and they had uh, different moisture contents, mm. some very low, some very, um, a little too high, maybe. Of course, I would start to use the higher moisture content yeah. first because I know that the shelf life of that coffee is fading quicker. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so it's um, and we we kind of learned the hard way as well. We we bought um, a higher moisture content uh, Ethiopian this year. Yeah, yeah. we took the risk because <laughs> yeah. we wanted to start uh, working with a single farmer, and we took a risk of uh, yeah, we bought uh, uh, two lots of washed coffee and two lots mm. of naturals, and one of the washed coffees were very high oh, moisture, mm. uh, and I wasn't sure if, if it was actually the coffee or just bad sample preparation because yeah. we had samples from the same coffee uh, that had lower but when it landed it had like 13 and a half percent and mm. I took a sample of each bag and cupped it blind and every bag that had uh, high, high moisture content was woody, woody for sure. Yeah. So what do we do with that coffee? Well we actually managed to sell the green coffee but mm. we, we lost a lot of money on it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, nothing yeah. to laugh of, but that's a risk you want to take. Yeah, that was sort of learning the hard way with that one. Yeah, I feel like we've, uh, we haven't even talked about roasting, Ben, but I think we <laughs> will start doing that in the next episode. Uh, oh. A lot about green coffee this episode, but uh, for us, you know, green coffee is the fundament yeah. for having a good roast. For sure. Uh, like they say, and uh, some chefs say, if you put shit in, you get the <laughs> shit out. So yeah. you have to really make sure you have the highest possible quality if you want to have good quality roast as yeah. well. Mm. So we're going to end the episode here. Uh, in episode two, you will be hearing a little bit more from Ben and I, uh, where we talk about rate rise and different uh, machines, maybe color measurement and so on. Yeah. So Look thank you for that. joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. What do you say when you, it's not a video? I can say see you next time. Well, Hear you next yeah, time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening.